uh, in it last week. We'll be in it for a while now. Um, love the book of Acts. And and uh, just to, to kind of clarify what we're doing here, the book of Acts is is really the, the first example that we have to look at of how a church handled business, handled life, handled ministry, handled doing things for the Lord. And we can look at that example. There's history, there's there's uh, examples all throughout Scripture. We can look at different periods in history and, and see what the church is doing then. But this is the first example that we have of the church of Christ, of those that are following in the footsteps of Christ, on how they lived and how they did things and how they went through life, how they served the Lord and what they did. And I want us, and what we're going to do over the next several weeks, is to look at the Scriptures and Acts and understand how some ways that we can model those things in our lives, what lessons we can learn from them, and how we can become more of the church that God desires for us to be today. Amen? Because I hope we all understand that God has a desire for our church. It wasn't just He established New Canaan years ago through some other group of people and that people after people have come and went and left and died or whatever it may be and that we're here just by happenstance. He has a desire and a plan for our church and I pray that our desire is to faithfully fulfill that plan, that purpose, that desire that He has for us. And we can learn many things from these scriptures in the book of Acts on how we can accomplish that. Amen. Last week we talked about being a witness. We understand that God's purpose that He left the apostles and the disciples with was to be a witness to the world of who Christ is. Of what it was that, that He came for, why He came, the what He offers through salvation and the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, and that we too should be witnesses. But we don't, we don't need to just be witnesses. We also need to be disciples. Amen. And that's going to be the core focus of this morning's uh, sermon is disciples. All right. So we're going to read some scripture in Acts chapter 2 verses 41 through 47. So once again, that's Acts chapter 2 verses 41 through 47. We'll have it up on the screen or you can follow along in your your Bibles. Um, We'll jump through these scriptures, then we'll come back and kind of hash them out a little bit as we go through the sermon. So the scriptures read like this. It says, then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day about 3,000 souls were added to them, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. That's Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Amen. So real quick, I want us to understand what has just occurred. Okay? Um, we read the first, we read part of the scripture in the first chapter of Acts last week about how God gave them this purpose. That He told them, "Hey, I want you to to wait. I want you to wait in Jerusalem for a season." Basically, he, he understood that He was going to send them the Comforter, the Holy Spirit. He says, "Wait," and then I want you to go into Judea, Samaria, Jerusalem, all and all the corners of the world, and be a witness of who I am, of who I was, the life that I lived, and who I am as as God divine and the one that offers salvation from hell. Right? He says, "I want you to be this witness." So the disciples go to Jerusalem and they, they sit there for a season. Pentecost comes and they're obedient. Right? They wait. Pentecost comes and, and the Bible tells us at that point that they are imbued with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes down and they are filled with the Holy Spirit. And they begin to do great works and acts in, through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 
And, and all the people were just so in awe of what these men were doing, right? We understand Scripture tells us at one point that some even accused them of being drunk or something going on, uh, you know, kind of nefarious or underhandedly or, or, or not good, um, immoral. And, and Peter gets up, the Bible tells us, in, 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 this, in this chapter right before what we've read, and he begins to, to speak us, give a sermon, right? Give a sermon of who God is, uh, of who, how he relates to David, and, and why we should look at God basically as the messianic figure and the one that has saved Jerusalem, not only Jerusalem, but the world ultimately is what we come to the understanding of. And through this scripture, through this sermon, that's where we pick up here, and 3,000 souls are saved at this time, right? And that, that's an awesome thing to think about. 3,000 souls at one time being saved, giving their lives to God, converting to Christianity and, and serving Him. These aren't just people that just didn't have any beliefs. A major part of society at that point was belief, was faith, was religion. There was Jews, there, there was others that had from, from different Oriental places, some from Africa, all over that had different religions, different belief systems they came and they hear this sermon they hear the holy they, they see the holy spirit working through these men and they convert they come to know jesus and become followers of him and that is an awesome thing to happen by the apostles being obedient something happened that's what i want to start out with is understanding this something that happened it's it's my experience that when unbelievers spend time in the presence of the lord under the teaching of the of the word of god under the bible and are shown care and compassion and love by believers, that something happens to them. That something happens to them. We see that this something happened to these individuals in this scripture, and they were saved, they were converted, they came to know Jesus Christ. Something is happening in this scripture that we read, right? And I, I pray that all of us here today know Jesus Christ our Lord and Savior. And if we do, then something has happened within us, right? Something amazing, something wonderful, something powerful, something that cannot be ignored. We've received the gift of salvation, eternal life, communion with God, inheritance of an undeserved reward that has been given to us. Something has happened. Something amazing has happened in our lives. Something amazing had happened in these people's lives here 2,000 years ago when Peter spoke, Peter preached, and gave the Word of God. And I love the song. The Gaither sing a song, He Touched Me, right? He says, He touched me, oh, He touched me, and oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know He touched me and made me whole. Now, thankful that we can know that something happened when He comes down and He visits us, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our wrongs, and He saves us, something has happened, right? But let's get real in our lives, right? There's a lot of some things that have probably happened to us at some point in our life. Maybe some of us some of us are married, right? That's something that's happened. You had a kid. That's a big something that has happened. Maybe something bad has happened. You've, you've experienced loss in your life recently. Something has happened. Maybe you've got some medical issues going on. Something has happened. And a lot of times what we realize is when something happens, something else changes. You notice that? When you get married, things are going to change. Your life is going to change. It's going to look different. You're going to modify certain things that you used to do and you're no longer going to do them. There are certain things that you didn't do that you're going to start doing now. When something happens, something changes. When you have a child, you're not going to be able to go out as much as you did. You're not going to be able to spend money on yourself as much as you did. It's when something happens, something changes. You lose somebody that you love dearly, right? Your mentality about things change. Your mentality about family changes. Your mentality about life changes. Maybe you view life at one point as just it's all in front of you, right? This, you lose somebody that you love and, and maybe now you think about it differently. Maybe it seems more finite. Maybe you realize that you're not going to be here forever and you, you something changes 
when something happens. You have something health-wise go on. There's a lot of people that, that they live and they do whatever they want to, then they have a heart attack, right? Or something like that, and then they change something. They start eating better, they start doing differently, they start trying to watch their health better so that that doesn't happen again. Something happens and something changes, right? You can see that in our lives. And I just gave a few examples, but we all can look at our lives. <coughs> and we can point at specific moments or events or things when something happened in our lives and then something changed because of what it is that that happened. Now, let's let's understand that when we are saved, something amazing has happened. And honestly, something should change in reaction to that happen. Right? If something happens and something changes because of what happened. When we are saved, that's something that happened. There should be a change that follows it. But sadly, we look at church culture and church society and maybe maybe people that we love and, and then there's those that profess the faith and they profess that they've been changed and they profess that they've been saved, but there's never been a change that happened because of what happened. Right? There's never been that modification of lifestyle or how they lived or how they did things in life or who they are as a person. Sometimes the change is big, right? Sometimes you have people that come in that are in addiction, they're going through struggles, they're going through hardships like that. They come in and they drop it, right? They move away from it. They, they do everything they can to get away from it and then they live a new life. For others, we were raised in church, right? And, and we didn't have a lot of, maybe we didn't think we were full of sin, but we were full of sin, right? But we didn't have all these outwardly sins that sometimes people point fingers at that are noticeable. But we come and we're still, we're saved there's a change. Our mindset changes. Our mentality changes. Our heart changes. But if we are saved and something's happened, there needs to be a change from that, re- that reacts from what happened in our lives. But sadly, that's not always the reality. That's not always how things work in our life. But what we need to understand, what we need to understand is as we look at this scripture, it says, those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls for attitude, and that this something has happened, right? And we may never see a time in history again where 3,000 souls are saved. I don't know. I'd love to see it, but we we don't we don't know that. The Bible says it'll like worse and worse to the end times, right? We understand that's a reality. But we'd love to see people get saved. But if we have been saved, we need to show that example of what happens when something happens. The reaction to what has happened in our life. And that reaction is that we should develop traits of a disciple. Once something has happened in our lives, we should begin to develop certain traits, certain attributes that that model that of a disciple of Christ as we grow closer to Christ. And this scripture, we're going to read verse, couple, pull some excerpts from a couple of verses here in just a moment. But what, what we're about to read is an exhaustive list of what it is that the character traits of a Christian, the character traits of a disciple of Christ, and how we should live our life. But it is a good foundation for us to establish as we seek to grow closer to God. Amen. So here's what some of the verses we're going to read. So one part it says, And they continue steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. The apostles' doctrine ultimately is their teaching, right? This isn't just they listened to it, but they, they, they continued steadfastly. That infers and that we understand that what their meaning is, they were obedient to it. They followed in its footsteps. They did it. They partook in it. They lived it out. They heard it. They continued to go and be observant of teaching. They continued to read the writings that were sent to them. But not only did they just read them or bring them in, but they also participated in what was being taught of them. Amen. So if we are to be a disciple, one of the traits we have is that we should love the teaching of God's Word and we should be obedient to the teaching of God's Word. We have to have that, right? If we don't love hearing from God, then really why are we following 
after Him. And that's what these teachings, when Gilbert teaches, when I speak, when somebody else gives, gives, uh, gives into testimony into the Word of God, that is us hearing revelation from the Word of God. Revelation just means to have something revealed. Amen. The Scripture sometimes with our sinfulness can be maybe shadowed, maybe sometimes we misinterpreted, be misunderstood, but revelation brings clarity. And we, if we are disciples of Christ, one of the traits we have is that we love the Apostles' Doctrine, that's just the teaching of the Word of God, and that we are obedient to it. We are obedient to it. It also says, and fellowship in the breaking of bread. Alright? So fellowship in the breaking of bread. What this infers, breaking of bread meant two things for them in that society we understand from Scripture. One, it just meant to sit down and eat together. Right? To sit down at the table, to break break a meal together, to eat food together. But it also meant the, the sacraments of the Lord's Supper. Right? If you understand what Paul wrote and what we understand from the Scriptures, they did both together. About every time they sat down to a meal with church folk, they also took the Lord's Supper. So it was one and the same for them. So what this scripture here is saying is saying that if you're a disciple of Christ, one of the traits you have is that you should be in community, active, participatory community with followers of Christ. Amen? That you're not just a lone wolf out here on your own. You're not just riding solo. You're not just trying to be the lone ranger. That you are actively participating in a community of Christ. And that's what we see in this this doctrine and what we are taught here in this scripture is that these individuals, they come from all realms of the world, they come from all walks of life and all backgrounds, and they come together and here in this place, they begin to fellowship one another together and they begin to break bread together. Amen. What we understand, and what I want to be clear here with this, is that, like I said, these people are very, very backgrounds from all kinds of walks of life, but yet they found this similarity in Christ Jesus, this shared connection through the blood of Jesus Christ, through them being a disciple of Jesus Christ, and through that connection, they had fellowship and community one with another, right? And we too, we may look around our church, and yes, we all mostly from rural America and everything, we all have several share similar background and stuff. But a lot of times we like to get in our little niches and our little corners and our little nooks and crannies with those people that we really relate to and that we're really comfortable with and we like to isolate from those things. That is not what Scripture teaches us. Scripture teaches us to find fellowship and understand the context with all that proclaim the name of Jesus Christ that are faithful and obedient. If they follow these other things, then we've got a lot that we could share a community with. Amen. So if we are a disciple of Christ, one of the traits is that we are actively participating in a community of believers. Right? It says, and in prayer. So this is self-explanatory. Disciples pray. Disciples talk to God. Disciples find a time and a season and a place and, and circumstances. And they make sure they have a way to get to a place where they can talk to God. Amen. Where they are lifting up prayers to heaven, that they through the Holy Spirit are communicating with God on high, and that Christ is then making intercessions for us to God Almighty. Right? That's, that's the process that we understand. As disciples, we should value prayer. We should respect prayer. We should prioritize prayer in our lives. This is a trait that every disciple should be actively practicing is prayer. Not just on Sundays, not just every now and then, but actively talking to God on high. Not just to ask for things. That's not all that prayer entails. Prayer is simply communicating with God. And for many of us, the sad reality is we just don't communicate with God. We send up a a wish request and then we go about our way, right? 
but we need to be communicating as disciples with the one that we are following. Amen? Okay. I don't ride motorcycles. I'm scared to death of them, right? But I know people that do, right? And what there is, if you're following somebody on the motorcycle, you've got to be communicating, right? If you're following somebody in any aspect of life, right? If you're behind them in a car, you got to tell I'm going to take a rest stop right now, right? Or you're going to keep on trucking while they take the inter, you know, intersect or get off the road real quick. You need to be communicating with the one that you're following. But sadly, sadly, we don't communicate with the one that we're following. Now let's be real for a moment. And let's just think of this in a real sense, right? If I'm following somebody and uh, I don't communicate with them, Am I going to usually end up the same place that they end up? It's going to be pretty hard, ain't it? Right? If I'm trying to follow in somebody's footsteps, right, and it's cloudy and it's foggy and it's a messed up situation, you don't know, you, I don't know where I'm going. The other person does, but I don't know where I'm going. I'm not going to end up where I need to end up all the time. I'm going to make wrong turns. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to make failures. And a lot of times for us in our lives, we look at things that we've, times that we've sinned, times that we've fallen short, and if we were honest with ourselves, and we could trace it back to the point where we just didn't communicate with the one that we were following. And then we wonder why I ended up on this side road. Well, it's because you didn't ask God the directions that He was taking. You wonder why you ended up going off the road. You wonder why you ended up trucking while Jesus is over here. It's because we weren't communicating. We weren't praying. We weren't talking with the one that we're following. Amen. Amen. If you're following Jesus, ask disciples, that's what it means, to be one that follows Jesus, to be like Jesus, to seek after Jesus, then we should be talking to Him. We do that through prayer. Prayer isn't just asking for things. Prayer is communicating with God. Okay, we go a couple verses down. I believe this is verse 46. And it says this, it says, Now all who believe were together, so that goes back to the community thing, and had all things in common, and sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. Disciples are generous. That's a trait that a disciple of Christ will have. We understand that not just from this scripture, but because of the way that Jesus lived his life. Jesus was generous. Jesus was generous with his time. Jesus was generous with what he had. Jesus was generous generous with his gifts and his talents and abilities. He was generous with every aspect of his life. So too should we as disciples be generous. And there's this scripture that talks about selling everything you have and kind of you know, making a, 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 your own community kind of thing. This is the only time that's kind of referred to. We look at other stories um, where Paul goes to other churches, and we don't see this exact example given where they sold everything and they all kind of pulled in together. But in every church that Paul talked to, we see examples of generosity. We see examples of people giving above above what they what's expected of them, right? Paul multiple times writes to individual churches and says, I'm appreciative of the gift of the generous gift that you have given, right? We see that example of generosity from all the disciples throughout the New Testament. We've seen Old Testament, but from the disciples of the New Testament as the early church is being developed, we see generous people giving not just their money, but giving their time, giving their gifts, giving their abilities, giving their shoulder for people to cry on, giving whatever it may take to be a witness to Jesus of Jesus Christ to those that need it. We need to be generous. That is a trait that we as individuals, we as a church, we as the church global need to practice or understand that we divide among them all. Has anyone had need? Traits of a disciple is that we are generous. Amen. We are generous. And it goes on. Verse 40, it starts this. It says, praising God. Praising 
God. We as disciples should have the desire to praise the Lord. We as disciples of God should have the desire to glorify Him and honor Him and worship Him and lift Him up and praise Him for all that He has done, all that He is doing, and all that we are aware and know that He is going to do. We might not know exactly what it is, but we know that He will not stop working. He is preparing a place for us, the Bible tells us, right? He is doing great work even now and into the future. He is worthy of our honor and praise. And we as disciples of Christ, if that's what we claim to be, should have a desire to praise Him, to lift Him up and give Him the honor and glory that He is worthy of. A lot of times praise is something that we get a bad taste in our mouth as individuals, right? We don't like to have to praise somebody else, right? Sometimes we think, well, I don't want to give anybody praise, right? I don't want to glorify anybody. I don't want to honor anybody. I'm my own person. Everybody's their own person. Nobody's any better than anyone else. The thing is, God is better than all of us. God is greater than all of us. His ways and His thoughts are much higher than our ways and our thoughts. He is God divine. We talked about last week how the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Christ is one of the persons of the Trinity. He is Christ the sacrifice. The ultimate one that came to give His life for us. He is worthy of our praise. He is worthy of the glory that we give. He is worthy of us humbling ourselves before Him and lifting Him up. Paul said, as I decrease, may Christ increase. As we worship God and give Him more authority and more praise and more glory in our lives, in our worship, in our words that we use, then He is increased, not just in my life, but in the world around us and in the lives of those that we come in contact with. Amen? That happens through me humbling myself and giving way to allow myself to praise and to worship and to honor God. Amen. You might be like, well, I, I'm just not a vocal person, right? Or I just don't understand how to praise God. Or it's hard for me to allow myself to let those walls down and do that. We need to come to a place and an acknowledgement that God is worthy of our praise. It doesn't matter what happens, I'm going to praise Him, right? It doesn't, praise isn't just about what's going on in my life right now, right? It's easy. To, we talk, we sing this song, God on the Mountain. It's easy to praise God on the mountain. It's easy to praise God when things are going right. It's easy to praise God when we've not lost anybody yet, when we've not experienced sickness yet, when we've not experienced hurt yet, when we've not experienced pain yet. It's easy to praise God when things are just lining up the way that we hoped they would, the way that we prayed they would, the way that we planned for them to. But when it's hard, when it's difficult, when we're grieving, when we're hurting, when we're we're pained, when we're suffering, when things aren't working together, when things are falling apart, we need to still praise the Lord as disciples of Christ. Understand, once again, the context of this Scripture. The majority of Acts is written with the context of they were going through persecution. Some of the Scriptures were literally written by people imprisoned. Awaiting the death penalty. Others are written by people that were watching brothers and sisters die and go through awful pain and suffering and torment. Yet they praise God. Disciples of God have a desire to praise God. In the second chapter of the book of Acts, the first real, if you want to call it, the first service of the new church of Jesus Christ, establishes these five things as core attributes and traits of a disciple of Christ. That we not only just listen to teaching, but we love teaching, 
and that we're obedient to the teaching of the Word of God. That we have community and we're participating in it. This breaking bread. It doesn't have fellowship. We're not just talking about you going around shaking hands, yada, yada. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about fellowship and actively participating, breaking bread, sitting at the table, participating in life with the individuals. So there's actively participating in the community of believers. You pray, right? You communicate with God on high, not just asking for things, but you talk to Him. You seek guidance from Him. And then divided among them all, you are general, generous. You have generosity within you to give as God has given you. And then also you have a desire to praise the Lord. These five things, these five things are traits that we all should have. Now get it. Understand this. People are going to acquire these and get better at these at different rates. Right? We don't get saved and automatically have a deep, thriving understanding of Scripture. We don't just get saved and automatically understand that we should give to God as He has given to us. We don't get just we just don't get saved and overnight we just are are filled with this this desire to 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 be with people and have community with people. Maybe we came into church and we just are, are an isolated person, then we get saved. That's sometimes a wall that we have to break down. But here's the reality. And here's what, what God laid on our heart and what God spoke into us. Right? That if you've been saved for 10, 15, 20 years, and uh, you still don't have a desire to praise the Lord, there's a problem there. Right? If you've been saved 10, 15, 20 years and you find every excuse not to go to church still, there's a problem there. If you've been saved 10, 15, 20, 30 years, whatever it may be, and you just you just never seem to hit your knees and pray, well, there's a problem there. Right? If you go through these things and, and you look at these things, you're like, I've been saved for a long time and I still don't like to hear, read the Bible. Right? You just can't find time. You can't even find time to do it. You've been saved 10, 15, 20 years and you still hate being around God's people. Well, guess what? There's, there's a problem there. Right? If you still don't want to pray after 10, 15, 20 years, there's a problem that you need to recognize and allow the Holy Spirit to work in you. All these things, they might not happen overnight. I get that. I understand that. I still work on some of these things. But if we're not actively trying to pursue these things after a certain amount of time, we need to evaluate our life and in the way that we are following the footsteps of God because disciples will have these traits. Will have these traits. Or will be moving towards having these traits or working on these traits. Or if nothing else, have a desire to be doing these things. But if we have no desire to do these things, then we must, we must go to the Holy Spirit, go to God in prayer, and realize and recognize that we need, some, we have things that we need to work on. That we, we need to work on. Now I get it. There's, and, and let me clarify. There's days that, there's some of these things that I, I just, I'm, I'm just don't want to do anything that day. Right? I'm not just talking about those exceptional days. But if over months and months and you look back and you can't remember the last time you prayed. And months and months. And you don't remember the last time you went to church more than one week at a time. You were able to string a couple of weeks together. Months and months. And you still just, just you, you hate the idea of being around somebody, the people of God. We really need to understand the Holy Spirit. We talked about the Holy Spirit last week. The Holy Spirit, through its working in us, will begin to encourage us, to nudge us, to convict us, to prod us, to push us towards developing these in our life. We need to recognize that. And we need to try our best to let the Holy Spirit work within us to develop these and to work on these in our life and in the, uh, as we follow in the footsteps of Christ. Amen. I want us to understand. 
that what comes after that, right? I'm not saying that, I'm, this is not saying once you get to that point and you've arrived and you've got all these things hammered down, what comes after that? What I'm saying is after you've been saved and after you've, you know, begin that process of becoming a disciple of Christ, right? You're, you're trying to submit yourself to Him. You're trying to commit to Him. You're trying to, to actively practice these certain traits and things like that. What comes, comes next? As we look at the Scriptures, what we see is this progression of events, Right? In Scripture, we often need to, to recognize and look at the progression of how things happen, right? A lot of times we like to just take excerpts out of it and just read small parts of it, and we don't pay attention to the pro- process and the progression that God is a- allowing us to see to understand what it is we need to do. This, pro- this progression that we see here is that Peter preaches the Word of God, right? Holy Spirit works, moves in a powerful way. 3,000 souls are saved. And then what we see is what we just read. Those 3,000 souls and the other followers that, are, that have been following Christ and those that are, that are getting saved, they come in and they begin to practice these traits, right? They begin to develop these traits of being a disciple. They start doing those things that we just read. They start praising. They start praying. They start uh, you know, living continually and steadfastly in, um, in, in the uh, apostles' doctrine. They, continue, they start doing these things and practicing them. Then what occurs is what happens in verse 43. It says, then fear came upon every soul. Fear, if you look at the Greek, and some translations will also translate it as awe. Okay? We oftentimes we think of fear as a bad thing, right? The fear of the Lord, you know, and things like that. But what fear, what God is trying to entail through Scripture using the word fear, what the men of God are trying to entail by using the word fear, is this understanding of awe and respect. Awe and respect, right? I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I, I stand on the edge of the Grand, maybe the Grand Canyon, the Palo Duro Canyon is one I've seen. You stand on the edge, and it's wide berth, and, and yes, there's some fear of falling, but there's also this awe that comes from its grandeur, from from the risk of, of what you what could happen, right? And that's this awe that we see here in Scripture. So it says, so let's just say awe. Then awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. All right, so we see. They get saved. Something happens, right? We've experienced that, hopefully. I pray that you have. And if you're not, you can. But something happens. They're saved. Then they begin to practice these, these disciplines, these traits of a disciple, trying to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, trying to do these things that are laid out for them. And then after that, it says, then, then, we understand that then is a progression, a progression, right? It, it infers that there's something happens after that. Then fear or awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. What we understand is that after the salvation and after this submission to the Lord and, and, and seeking to be a disciple of Him and taking on these traits, practicing these traits, then the power of God, the Holy Spirit, began to move in a powerful way, right? What I'm not saying, understand this, I'm not saying that the moving of God is completely and totally dependent upon your righteousness. That is not what we're saying. What I do want to challenge us with is that we are conduits of the power of God. Yo, can I get your help with something? that. Come 
up here on the steps so they can all see it, so they get a good example. They just see your back. They don't get anything, I don't think. All right. And then I got an anchor. All right, there we go. Okay. So conduit is just something that another thing passes through, right? It's something that another thing passes through. Pipe is made for, you know, water or septic or different things. Mark can give you a whole list of all the things that pops, the PVC pipe is made to pass through, right? Everything like that. The pipe is made to allow water to pass through. Okay, that's what the conduit is made for. So I didn't practice this, so we'll just try it. Okay. So I'm, Gilbert can attest I am pouring water into this conduit, right? right? Now, we see drips starting to come out, but it's not freely flowing, right? And the reason that is is because there's something inhibiting the flow of the water, right? There's something getting in the way of it. There is a clog that allow, that does not allow what it's meant to carry, what it's meant to to be a, a carrier of, it's not allowing it to go through because of what is, is clogged in, right? But if we remove that which causes the clog, then what was meant to go through it is able to go through. That makes sense, right? I'm no plumber. I'm no plumber. I did change the toilet the other day, and it's not leaked yet that I know of. Might be underwater. But I'm, not. Um, but I'm no plumber. But I understand that process, right? That a conduit is made to allow certain things to pass through it in a safe manner and get it to where it needs to be, right? Let's view ourselves as that conduit, all right? We are made to allow something to work through us and get to where it needs to be. That something is the power and of the Holy Spirit, right? We are made as conduits for the Holy Spirit to work through us. And that's what the Scripture says, right? It says, Then fear or awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through, through the apostles. Not by, not of their power or of their righteousness, or of their good deeds, but through the apostles. What that means, the apostles were simply conduits of the power of God to get it from the divine here on earth. That's what he put them there for. That's what he has put us here for, is to be conduits to allow the Holy Spirit, to allow the power of God to work through us to get what God wants, the message of the gospel, from him to us to them. Amen? That all makes sense? I mean, that, this is some powerful stuff, right? This is what the gospel is. If we don't understand this about Acts, then the rest of Acts ain't going to make, make a hill of beans, right? This is what we see in Acts, is that God has allowed and divine and purposed mankind to be the conduit to allow His Holy Spirit to have work and agency and power in the active world, even though the world is full of sin and distrust and destruction. We are the conduits that allow the Holy Spirit to come into it. However... If we have been clogged by the things of the Lord or the things of the world, if we have been allowed our own choices, our own selfish nature, our own sinful nature to predominate and to dictate what we do and how we live our life, then guess what? That conduit isn't allowed to work effectively. Right. It isn't allowed to come through freely. And that Holy Spirit, it comes down and, and we as being saved, we're supposed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, we're supposed to be close to God, following after God, supposed to have these certain traits we talked about. And then we're filled with sinfulness and we allow those things to dictate and rule our lives and we don't, we don't establish these certain traits and, 
And then God tries to work through us and God wants to move through us and God wants us to tell people about Jesus and God wants us to talk to people about Jesus and God wants us to see people be saved and see great things be done. But there's that clog. And He's pouring His Spirit into us. He's sending word from heaven. He's sending word through song and through worship and through the Scripture. And He's pouring it into us. He's like, I want it to get through, but you've got stuff that's hindering that in your life, right? This is the thing. As we develop the traits of a disciple that is faithfully following in the footsteps of Jesus, those clogs will be removed. And we can more effectively allow the Holy Spirit to work through us. Right. To go through us. Amen. Amen. This is what God wants for His people. This is what God desired, how God desires to use us. The thing is, though, is that we are so used to the clog that we don't want to develop the traits that are necessary to remove the clog. We've gotten used to the dribble. You seen that? We've gotten used to the dribble. I want to clean. I have to clean our shower head with white, white vinegar, right? Or white, white still vinegar. I want to try. You got it. It worked great, right? Free flowing, powerful. And I've been noticing on the past few weeks that just that pressure is just kind of dying down. It's not what it used to be, and it's it's not a dribble yet, but it's definitely not the pressure that it once was. And the thing is, in our lives, we will see that same thing occur when we stop practicing and living out the traits of a faithful disciple. What used to be the Holy Spirit working through us in an effective and a powerful way, sin begins to creep into our life. And that pressure, that power, isn't what it used to be. And the Holy Spirit's still there. The water's still in there. Even if it wasn't putting an inch of it out, but a dribble here and there, the water's still there. There's just something inhibiting it from coming out the way that it was intended to. In our lives, there's a lot of times... There's things in our life that are inhibiting the power of the Holy Spirit, the power of God, to work through us because of things that we are allowing to clog up our lives. But what we need to do is if we practice and live out and take on these traits of a disciple, it begins to clear these things out of the way to allow the Holy Spirit to work. What happens when that happens? When we take on these traits of a faithful disciple, when we love the teaching of the Word of God, and we're obedient to the Word of God, the teaching of the Word of God, when we are actively participating in a community of believers, faithfully participating in a community of believers, uh, when we are praying and communicating with God, not just sending up requests, but we're actually, actually communicating with Him, when we are generous with our time, with our money, with everything that God has blessed us with, when we're generous in those ways, when we praise God, we have a desire to praise Him, a desire to glorify Him, what happens when all that other muck and junk gets cleared out? is revival occurs, right? Revival is not technically a scriptural or biblical term, but it's a concept of rejuvenation, of bringing back to life of that which is dead, to be awa- or to, to come back to life with that which is asleep, to be awakened, right? And when we, when we allow the Holy Spirit and give room for the Holy Spirit to work freely and forcefully and powerfully through us by participating and, and taking on and practicing these certain traits, revival occurs. Not just revival in our life, but revival in the church, and revival in the community, and revival in the body of believers, and revival in the surrounding area. Those that are lost, those that are saved, can and will experience revival, but we have to get the muck and the junk out of our lives to allow the Holy Spirit to move freely and powerfully through us. Through us. When I read this scripture today, as I was, um, I just I just sat down this morning, read through this, you know, I know, and read the scripture that this word through just keep on, kept on, 
just hammering in my mind. Through. 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 I want to work through you. I want to help through you. I want to bless through you. I want to encourage through you. I want to move through you. But we have to give room to allow the Holy Spirit through. Amen. Allow the Holy Spirit through. And I, I want to challenge us. Amen. As we look at this, this scripture, I want us to be challenged. Last week I challenged you to talk to somebody this week about Christ, about church, about Jesus, about the Bible. And I pray that you did that. But I want to begin to challenge you this week. Because I want to challenge you to pray for revival. Right? I want to challenge you. And, and, and I, I'm of the mindset that revival, you know, two, two terms. We use it as a noun and we use it as a verb. Right? In, in my mindset. But I want us to pray for the verb, the active revival of that which is asleep and that which is dead. And also the noun. I want us to pray for revival. A set of services where we come together and we focus on, on God and we allow room for Him to work and the Holy Spirit to move and we, 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 we try to live in a place and, and, and seek God in a way and pray and, and, and communicate with people in a way that we, we are able to have a group of, of services where God is moving in a powerful and a mighty and a forceful way. Amen. The Holy Spirit is doing its work. So I want us to pray for both. I want us to pray that God would allow our church to continue to be revived. We see a great revival in, in essence and sense, right? We may not see it in our, in our current understanding of revival. But God has revived us in many different ways over the past several years, right? But I want us to also understand that revival, that revival, a group of meetings, whether it be a week or 14 weeks, whatever it may be as God moves, in, but that God would send and God would lay on my heart and the leader's heart to send revival so that we could see souls be saved, so that we could see radical things happen in our church, that we could see souls that come in that might never ever come again, come in before that would come in and hear the gospel preached, would feel and experience the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. So I challenge you this week and going forward, pray for revival. Pray that God would, the song, Lord, send a revival. And let it begin in me. That's a good song, right? I don't know it, but that's a good song. Pray for revival. Pray that God would begin to start revival in your home and in your family. And that that revival would come into our churches. And that revival would, and, and that revival of the souls, revival of that which is maybe sleepy or groggy or kind of died down, would be re- flourish and grow and blossom into something great and powerful. That maybe we point back to a week of services, maybe whatever it may be. And then we look and we see God has moved. God has done a great thing, and God took our church that next step, that next portion, that next height, that next tier, whatever you want to call it, during this time of revival, right? So let's pray. Let's pray that God would send revival. Pray that God would send revival, the verb, and revival of the noun to our church and to our body of believers. But that's what my desire is. My desire is to see souls saved. My desire is to see lives changed. My desire is to see you all changed. And I'm thankful. Over the past several years, I've seen many of you all grow. Right? Many of you all become more faithful Christians, get closer to God, become more like the men and women that God desires for you to be. But I want to see souls be saved too, so that they can begin to take up these, these attributes and these traits. And then they can pass it on to another group and another group. And that's what God desires for us. Is He says, It's not my will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So I pray.